Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Caleb. I'm a part of the team here at South Point, and uh, it's really great that you're here if you're new with us, because today is the beginning of a new mini-series that we're starting called The Good Life. Now, if you've been with us uh, since December, we started studying the book of Matthew, and we uh, started a series called Good Soil, based on a parable that Jesus tells about the four kinds of people who receive the gospel, and one of them is good soil, people who accept it. And now we're starting uh, this series of teachings from Jesus in the book of Matthew that's the largest block of his teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first part of this sermon, Jesus gives this section of teaching where he talks about the good life and what the good life is. It's, it's called the Beatitudes. Um, and as we're talking about the good life, every single person in this room, every person everywhere, has an idea of what the good life is. If we'd be willing to be honest with ourselves, most of the time, our idea of what the good life is is based on the lived experience of another person. If you think about it, most of the time we see what someone else has, maybe it's something, maybe it's someone, and we look at them and we're like, oh man, they are living the good life. I've experienced this myself, actually. I remember my first year of college, I left here, Rhode Island, and moved to southwest Missouri to pursue my education, and I thought I had all this freedom, I thought I was going to live the good life, and then I found out that in southwest Missouri, there are no good Italian restaurants. <laughs> in fact, the best Italian restaurant is a little family restaurant called Olive Garden. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, I don't want to be there and I don't want to be their family. So. And for four years, I lived through this form of Italian food chain hell where I had to either eat Olive Garden or eat nothing. But I thought about my family who lived here, and I was like, they have the good life. They can eat Italian food anytime they want. And now we're back in the land of chicken parm and cannolis, so I'm living the good life again. But, like I said, everyone has an idea of what the good life is. For some of us, the good life is being loved by someone or loving someone else. For some of us, the good life isn't about love, but maybe it's about receiving sexual gratification from whomever is willing to sleep with us. For some of us, the good life is, is finally getting that job we've always wanted, getting that raise, getting that promotion. For some of us, the good life is getting enough clothes for reaching the quality of life we've always wanted. The good life is about becoming a homeowner or a homeowner or a car owner, fill in the blank. All of us have an idea of what the good life is. And in fact, we're so obsessed with our idea of the good life, there's an entire clothing brand dedicated to it. There it is. Life is good, isn't it? But the real question is, how do we know what the good life is? If all of us have this idea of what the good life is, how do we know which one is right? Because I can eat all the Italian food that I want while I live here, but in just a few hours after I eat Italian food, I'm gonna be hungry again. We can pursue the relationships that we, we want, that we're interested in, but eventually the butterflies go away. We can pursue all the sexual partners that we want, but eventually we'll just start swiping again. We can, we can get the job we've always wanted, but there's always another uh, rung to climb on the ladder. We can get the promotion or the raise, but there's always more money to chase, there's always a better job to have. We can, we can buy clothes, but clothes stain and they fade, or even worse, they go out of style. 
We can buy the latest water bottle that miraculously keeps our ice cold for over a day, but then all of a sudden there's another new bottle that does the same thing that we have to have. And all of a sudden, everything that we've chased, everything that we've pursued that we thought would bring us to the good life, we get, and then there's something else that we want. All of a sudden, life isn't good enough. We're not satisfied with what we find. The life we've always wanted isn't actually the life we've wanted, now there's something else that we want. So I have to ask again, what is the good life? And maybe even more importantly, how do we know that when we get to this good life that it's actually going to last this time? It's not just going to become something that we decide we don't want anymore. If you haven't been with us, the past few weeks we've been uh, examining the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he has shown up to this place called Galilee, and he's been, he's been proclaiming this message about this kingdom. This kingdom that's coming and has now arrived through him that is going to change the reality of the people around him. Remember, he was in this place called Galilee, and there are people who are near to God and people who are far from God. And as he teaches these people, he's also healing them and performing these signs that show what this kingdom is going to be like. And then he, he climbs up this mountain and he sits down and he looks at the lived experience of the people around him and he's going to say, you have the opportunity to live the good life. And in fact, you're already almost there. And this is where we're going to pick up in Matthew. So here's what, how we're going to break up our text today. Uh, we're going to do the first half. We're going to talk about why Jesus has the authoritative view on what the good life is. And the second half is we're going to examine three statements he makes about the good life and how surprising they are and how it's going to be for the powerless, the grieving, and those who control their power. So here we go. Why Jesus has the authoritative perspective on the good life. Matthew 5, 1 through 2. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I hope you guys are ready for it to get nerdy in here. So two weeks ago, I talked about a principle for reading the Bible, and that when you read the Bible, details matter. I'm back with another principle for reading the Bible. And when you read the Bible, and to read it effectively, you have to understand the depth and the breadth of its richness. So we believe at South Point, and just as Christians in general, that God inspired the authors of the Bible, and that the authors of the Bible were masters of literary composition. They, they knew almost all the Old Testament by heart. They wrote in these styles and genres with different metaphors and images and allegories. And they're different than our own because they're written in a different time and a different culture. And this is the reason why the Bible is confusing. This is the reason why the Bible is strange or even comes off as a work of fiction or fantasy because they use styles of literature we're not used to. But in fact, um, the Bible is probably the most complex and deep piece of literature in the entire world. An artist did a, a like rendition of what every cross-reference, parallel, allusion, and direct quotation the Bible has within itself. And this is what it looks like. Some people call this the reference rainbow. There you go, if you want to remember it. But, I mean, you didn't read anything like this in high school English class. Nothing this complex. And the Bible is a deep and complex book, but at the same time, the Bible is also very simple. The overall structure, meta-narrative, or overarching story of the Bible is simple. It's about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The message of the gospel is incredibly simple, that Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, he died the death that we deserve, resurrected, defeating the powers of sin and death so that we can be reconciled to God. A very simple message. And, and I don't know who coined this phrase, or this uh, saying, 
I first interacted with it from Tim Keller. He's a pastor. But the quote goes something like this, that the Bible is the most, is simple enough for the child to understand its central message, but complex enough for the most gifted scholar that the most gifted scholar could never fully grasp its richness. And like any other work of literature from a text message to the Dune series, the Bible must be interpreted to discover a greater meaning with what it's saying. So here's why I say all this. I'm not just here to give a how to read the Bible talk. In the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew does say something important about what Jesus is doing. It's significant that Jesus sits down. We talked about this last week, that in a Jewish synagogue, the practice would be for the, the teacher or the rabbi to read a section of scripture and then sit down and give his teaching. So when Jesus sits down, he's obviously going to teach. But Matthew has actually been doing something incredible in his first five chapters of this gospel about Jesus. And we have to understand what he's doing from himself as an author and to the people he's speaking to to understand why this is so important, what he's saying about Jesus. So the Gospel of Matthew that we've been studying is written by a guy named, good job, and Matthew is a Jewish author. And Matthew's audience, whom he is writing to, is Jewish people who he is trying to convince that Jesus is the Messiah, or in other words, the Savior that God's promised all along. And if you were uh, Matthew, the best way to convince someone that Jesus is in fact who he says he is, is to use the Old Testament. Because the Jewish people, to Israelites, the Old Testament is the most important thing in the world. And even more importantly, it is the first five books of the Old Testament. They would call them the Torah, we would call them the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because these tell the story of, G- of Israel's uh, liberation, that's the word, liberation from slavery, and also the giving of their way of life, their rules, their laws. And all of this was given by a man named Moses. Moses is the one who delivered them out of Israel, and Moses is the one who delivered the law from God. And so what Matthew is doing in his first five chapters is he is trying to convince his readers that Jesus has come to be a new and a better Moses. I didn't hear any gasps, that's okay. <laughs> we have to understand how important that this statement is because uh, what, what the law was to Israel is kind of like what driving is to us. Stay with me. Driving is like the most universal experience ever because we all have these understood standards and principles for driving. We all agree that we should drive a certain way. And when someone drives the wrong way in our mind, we get offended. We get very offended. And most of us probably wouldn't want to say the words that we say when we get offended by someone else's driving. And if you're unable to drive correctly, you get your license revoked. You're not able to participate in the community of driving, which is something that we all do. And so what, what Matthew trying to say that Jesus has come to be a new and better Moses is like saying, we're going to start driving on the left side of the road now. Like, we're going to literally change the way that we drive because this guy showed up. So this is how important it is. And so Matthew drops all these hints that Jesus has come to be a new and a better Moses. He, Jesus parallels Moses' story. Moses was sent by God to deliver his people. Jesus was sent by God to deliver his people. Moses enters into Egypt. Jesus enters into Egypt. Moses leads Israel out of Egypt by passing through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Jesus goes out of, out of Egypt. He gets baptized, but instead of coming back out of the water, he actually passes through the water the same way that Israel did and goes out into the wilderness. Israel's in the wilderness for 40 days and tempted. Jesus is in, the, is in the wilderness for 40 days and tempted. And so if you're a Jewish reader, 
you would be expecting the next big thing to happen that, that the law would be given. Because after they go into the wilderness, Moses goes up on this mountain, gets a word from God, and proclaims the new way of living over Israel. But surely, Jesus wouldn't do this, right? But then, sure enough, you turn the page to Matthew chapter 5, and it says, Jesus climbs up on a mountain. And you're like, oh no, he's really doing it. And then it says, he sits down. In a Jewish synagogue, a teacher would sit down on what's called the seat of Moses, because he wrote the first five books of the Bible, and that's how they would teach. Jesus sits down and gives his teaching. So by doing this, by, by, by crafting this incredible first five chapters of his book, Matthew is making two pretty huge assumptions about Jesus. One of the assumptions that he's making is that Jesus either must be God or must be sent by God because he doesn't receive a word from God on the mountain. He just sits down and begins teaching what God's will is without consulting him. The second thing that, that Matthew assumes by doing this is that Jesus came to set a new way of living. It's not going to be about the old law anymore. But in fact, there's going to be a new law. It's not only going to be new, but it's going to be better. Because the old law was based on ethnicity. The old law was based on how you were able to keep your closeness to God. But the new law is going to be marked on those, or marked by God's availability to everyone and those who are willing to put their faith in him instead. It's no longer about ethnicity, no longer about your works, but who God is to you and how you're willing to give yourself to him. So this is what happens in the first five chapters. This is why it's so important that Jesus has the authoritative stance on the good life because he came to set a new and better way of living for the people who are interested in his kingdom. But then the surprise comes because in this kingdom, you'd expect that it would go first to the best of the best. But then Jesus sits down and gives this teaching and it's actually backwards. It's upside down. He gives this revolutionary teaching about who is going to receive the kingdom. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He says, bless or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us have probably heard these words before, the words of the Beatitudes, and if we're really honest with ourselves, they're mostly just like weird proverbs. We don't actually know what they really mean. We just kind of like, yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit. But if I could offer, I think, a different translation, I think that we might have a better and richer understanding of what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. And here's the alternative translation that I would offer. I believe Jesus is saying that the good life belongs to the powerless, for theirs is God's kingdom. Remember, I said that Jesus would, would be proclaiming uh, goodness over the people who are like, living this experience. And so Jesus, remember, is in Galilee around all these people. And these people are from, um, are, are from Syria and Galilee and uh, Decapolis, which just means ten cities, and Jerusalem and Judea and the area beyond the Jordan. If you remember last week's sermon, Jesus was ministering to the sick and the oppressed and the uh, at least demon oppressed, and also just those who are near to God, those who are far from God. All kinds of people were coming out to Jesus to see him, and they came from all these places. And you can basically draw two circles over these two places and say, the first circle of people are people who are far from God, second circle of people are people who are near to God. But the one thing that every single person has in common from, uh, have in common despite how near or far they are from God is that they're all being oppressed by the power of Rome. They're all powerless in their situation. No matter if it's sickness or disease or oppression, everyone is powerless. And so Jesus is sitting here to give his authoritative teaching and he is going to bring this revolutionary, this new kingdom 
that, that's going to be greater than the kingdom of Rome. It's going to be greater than what their religious elite or the politically powerful and what those with militant might could bring. But instead of giving it to the religious elite or instead of giving it to those who are politically powerful or those who have militant might, instead, the kingdom is going to go to the sick. The kingdom is going to go to the downcast. It's going to go to the poor, to the spiritually bankrupt, to those who have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to go. They've tried everything else. They've exhausted all the resources, and they just have nothing left to give besides just give their faith in God. That is who the kingdom is going to go to. And it's going to go in this kingdom that, that is being prepared for the powerless. It's the greatest kingdom that ever has been and ever will be. Because every kingdom that's ever been has risen and fallen. Rome rose and fell. The Greeks rose and fell. The U.S. has risen. It will fall at some point. Every single kingdom of the world will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will remain forever. So this is the best kingdom that you can be a part of. And the first people that he says the kingdom goes to are people who are powerless. So this is shocking. But then he continues, and he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This one's a little bit easier to understand, but I'll offer a different translation again just to change a couple words. Where he says, life, the good life belongs to those who grieve, for they will be comforted. So those who experience loss of loved ones, those who experience the loss of their health, those who uh, experience or, or see the, the evils of the world and grieve over those things, they are the ones who will be comforted by God. And we're being really honest with ourselves the kingdom or, or comfort going to those who grieve and this being a part of the good life is really, really weird. It's a weird thing for Jesus to say. How is it good to live a life of grieving? That, that seems backwards, doesn't it? But I think one of the aspects that Jesus is getting at here is, is that, that a life of grief is suggestive of or an output of someone who's loved well. We grieve the loss of our health and the loss of our loved ones because we know that's the way that God did not intend the world to work. We know that, that this is not how creation is supposed to be, that it's fallen, that it needs redemption. But when we're able to go beyond ourselves and grieve over the hurts of the world, to, to grieve over the, the reality of evil, it shows the depth and the ability that we have to love ourselves and others. And on the other side of this, we live in a distracted culture. And we also live in a culture where repression becomes king, where you're not supposed to focus too much on, on your mourning or your grief. Don't worry. Don't think too hard about your loss of health, your loss of a loved one. Don't, don't worry about the evil in the world. Just keep it down. Just keep doing your thing. Keep going out. Keep scrolling. Keep doing whatever it takes to not think too hard about what's happening. Just keep pushing down the pain. Just keep running. Just keep repressing. Just do whatever it takes to not have to deal with it. That is kind of the culture that we live in. But Jesus seems to suggest here that it's actually a better life to, live, to love and to lose than it is to oppress and run away. And not only that, but for those who are courageous enough to live and to love and to lose over and over and over again, they have the promise of comfort in the end. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he has this vision of heaven uh, that's where God dwells, in this vision of earth where we, we dwell. And those two things come together. And this is what it says. This is what John reports. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And so the text seems to suggest that the closer proximity we have to God, the more comfort that we experience from him. And even better than that, for those who love well and experience the loss of grief in this life, that they can have hope and eternal comfort when the time comes and all things are made new again. So it's better to live a life of love than it is to repress and run away. And then this is our final uh, shocking statement made by Jesus as he sits down and gives this authoritative teaching on the good life. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, i got to be honest, this word meek is really weird. It's a very, very unique word, and honestly, really, really hard to interpret. It's only used in the Bible a total of four times. Three of them are found in the book of Matthew. Once here, once it's used to describe Jesus himself, or Jesus uses it to describe himself as a teacher who is meek and lowly. The third time is to describe Jesus, but not Jesus describing himself but instead in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the end of the book where he rides in on a donkey and there's this contrast between Jesus being this great king but he rides in on this meek donkey. So it's weird. It's a weird word. I, I'm not really sure what to do with it. But I, uh, I had to ask for help. And so in college, I had the honor of being mentored by a uh, professor of New Testament studies named Mike. And so I texted him. I was like, hey, Mike, help me out. What does meek mean? <laughs> um, and he texted me a few different descriptions, but one of them they gave me was domesticated elephant. <laughs> and I was like, right. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. But as weird as the image is, it actually does make a lot of sense. Because if you think about it, an elephant is probably one of the biggest and strongest uh, animals in the entire animal kingdom. And uh, it could honestly do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants, with or without a trainer's permission. But I don't know if anyone's still hitting up the circus these days, but if you go to the circus, I'd imagine that you'd see a domesticated elephant. And this elephant seems to know how to keep its power under control for the sake of reward from its trainer. Now, I don't think, I think that the metaphor kind of falls apart when you think about how the elephant is likely domesticated against its will, but I think that the idea helps us understand the word meek. And I believe that the final translation that I would offer is that the meek, the good life, belongs to those who keep their power or their strength under control, for they will inherit the land. So some, of the, some people might label this word humility, and that's, that's fine. You can say humility if you want. Whatever you call it, it shows the revolutionary nature of God's kingdom, that those who are powerful, those who have influence, those who know a guy, uh, those who uh, have influence over what they do or who they are, that they have to keep their power under control to experience the good life with God. And Jesus gives a much more uh, robust teaching on this in the uh, book of Luke, chapter 22. He says this to his disciples. Uh, this says, then they begin to argue among themselves. Those are his disciples, by the way, um, about who would be the greatest among them. And then Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over them, over their people, meaning that the, the lords and great men uh, use and abuse the people who they are lords and kings over. It, but yet, they're still called the friends of the people somehow. But among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who's more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. So it seems that to Jesus that meekness is not weakness, but it's actually a trait of Christ-likeness. 
And it's taking the place of servanthood over the place of lordship. And if you think about an elephant, an elephant gets domesticated against its will and is still rewarded by a trainer. So imagine how much more that a good God will reward those who choose to take their power under control, under influence, or take their influence or their strength and keep it under the control for the sake of servanthood to become like Jesus. But then there's this reward for meek people that they will inherit the earth, or a more literal translation, uh, well, they will inherit the land. And I think we have to understand how charged this statement was, because remember that Jesus is in Galilee teaching Jewish Galileans, meaning that they, they were uh, uh, still identifying with God's covenant people, but they had been displaced from their original homeland. They, they for, like, from Roman oppressors, from other foreign powers, whatever the reason is, they are not allowed to live in the land that God promised them. And so they've been waiting for the Messiah to show up because the Messiah is supposed to be this militant leader. And when Jesus says they will inherit the land, they're like, yes, like, it's time, we're going home. But actually, Jesus has a different idea in mind for what the land is that they will inherit. Because Jesus does have a revolution in mind. Jesus does have a different idea of this kingdom, but the kingdom is going to be marked by other people. The people of the kingdom will fight. Yes, that's true. But they are going to fight to be the first to serve. The kingdom of people are going to work, and they're going to work hard, but they're going to work hard for the common good. The people of the kingdom aren't going to allow other people who are around them to fall into poverty and into hardship. The people of this kingdom aren't going to fight over their political convictions. They're actually going to be more convicted about the goodness and uh, well-being of the people around them instead. And Jesus doesn't have in mind something as trivial as a piece of land. I think what Jesus has in mind is the inheritance of a new and a better land. When the coming together of heaven and earth finally happens, and those people, the meek, they will get to reign with God when the end of the age comes. So these three snapshots are the beginning of the good life. Those who have no influence, those who grieve and love deeply, and those who humbly set aside their strength for the greater good are all signs, they're all point to the greater reality of a better kingdom coming. These are just glimpses and tastes of God's kingdom. And the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus and writes to these people called the Philippians in this church in Philippi. And pay attention to the wording that Paul uses and how much it mirrors the words of Jesus in his Beatitudes. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's my invitation this morning. If you're sitting here and you identify with the people who are powerless, you're just spiritually bankrupt, you're just unable to move on from your situation. You've tried literally everything else in this life and nothing seems to work. Run to Jesus. 
and see what the good life is with him. See how, how proximity to Jesus will bring a change in your life. If you're sitting here this morning and you're just racked by grief, if the realities of loss and hurt in your own life and the lives of your loved ones or just in the world just, just make you run from distraction to distraction because you can't handle how it feels to lay in your bed at night and stare up at the ceiling and wonder why everything is happening that's happening, run to Jesus and see how proximity to him will bring you peace and comfort that goes beyond understanding. If you are sitting here in this, this morning and you're powerful, you have influence, you have strength, you know a guy, it, it, or you, you're, just, you're pursuing your best life, doesn't matter what happens to other people as long as you get to live your best life. If those pursuits are wrecking your relationship with yourself or wrecking your relationship with others, run to Jesus. Ask and pray that he will teach you how to keep your power and your strength under control. See if he will teach you how to be meek and see what the good life is when you live with Jesus. And if any of these things are speaking to you, I want to invite you to capitalize on this opportunity. I don't want us to miss it. And so there are a couple ways for us to do this. One is that when service is over, there's going to be a group of people over there against that wall who are waiting to pray with anyone who wants to walk over. And if you feel the need to have someone pray for you, to have Jesus come into your life, to experience the good life with him, Go pray over there. If you're an introvert like me, there's a prayer room right there where you can go and pray privately. Or if you don't want to talk to anybody at all, which I can't blame you, there's also on your Connect cards, uh, there's a box that says, I want to know more about who Jesus is. And if you check that box, someone on the staff team will follow up with you. And my prayer this morning is that all of us, no matter if we fit into these three categories or if we don't, that we choose to just run to Jesus. Because the good life is life with Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together uh, to hear a word um, from, from uh, your son. We're just thankful for Jesus that he came and he brought a new kingdom and a new reality for people like us who are ordinary and powerless, uh, who are grieving and who uh, need to learn how to be kept in check. I just pray that, that you will teach each of us um, how to pursue you better, that you will give us the strength and the courage to pursue you uh, with all we are and all that we have to offer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.